From OTMP, this is your COVID-19 update. It is Wednesday, the 16th of March, 2022. The fifth wave of Omicron BA2 is currently having a significant impact on Hong Kong, and we are in the unenviable position of having the highest mortality rate in the world. In our latest podcast, Dr. David Owens and Professor Ben Cowling discuss the current situation and the factors driving the high mortality. They explain that we are already at herd immunity and ask what that means for Hong Kong over the next few months. They also answer questions submitted by you, our listeners. Well, Ben, a lot has happened since we um, last caught up. Obviously, we're now in the unenviable position of having one of the highest uh, per capita mortality rates in the world. So, uh, lots to talk about there. Obviously, the Hong Kong University published an update to the study today. And I had been looking at this data, and to me, this wave had arrived as a sharper, higher and shorter, more aggressive wave, so to speak, than, than maybe, you know, that, that had been predicting. And, you know, we're already at herd immunity. Now, one of the questions we actually got is, in your recent article, you said that Hong Kong is already at herd immunity. How can this be the case if we're at herd immunity that we can't just open up now? This is, this is your expertise, really, Ben. Could you explain a little bit around herd immunity as this wave burns through and what it means for the next month or two months, why we, why we can't just open up right now. That's right, David. With, with a reproductive number in the range of two to three, with the control measures that we have in place right now, we know the herd immunity threshold in this context would be somewhere between 50 and, and 67% of the population with immunity against infection. And that immunity would come either from, from infection in this wave or from maybe their vaccination history, particularly, for example, three doses of BioNTech. Now, of course, if, if the public health measures were to be lifted and the, the reproductive number would then have the potential to go back up to, to 10 or 12, then the herd immunity threshold would be way higher and most likely we see a resurgence of cases. But if we continue with at least some of the public health measures for longer, we'll see that the numbers of infections continuing to tail off. We're now past herd immunity. Actually, the peak was at, at the point when we passed herd immunity for, for the reproductive number under the control measures we have. So we're now overshooting that. And we'll continue with transmission for a little while longer. Most likely, we'll, we'll see some of the public health measures being relaxed and, and people returning to their, their behaviours, like going out uh, rather than staying at home, uh, maybe having more contacts in the community. So I, I think this wave will drag on a little bit longer. It won't go down to a low level that quickly because of changes in behaviour. But even if we were to gradually and progressively relax the public health measures that we have in place right now, I wouldn't expect a very large resurgence in infections because so many people have already been infected and are immune. I would not suggest to relax everything immediately, but if we have a progressive relaxation, I think we could manage the cases like they're doing in Singapore at a, at a reasonable level and certainly make sure that we don't have any uh, drastic rise in severe cases. Now, if that were the strategy, probably within three to six months, we could see all of the public health measures ultimately being relaxed and life very much returning to normal. Now we'd have to be on the alert for new variants because if there's another variant after Omicron, maybe that would be able to escape the immunity that we've built up in Hong Kong, just like Omicron's escaped the immunity from Delta in other parts of the world. So that it may not mean that, that the risk posed by COVID is over, but what we've seen in other parts of the world is when there's been large epidemics with one variant that cause a lot of severe disease, 
any future epidemics of, of subsequent variants don't tend to have a high public health impact. And I think South Africa is a very good example of that, where they had a large Delta wave with a lot of severe disease. And then some months later, they had their Omicron wave, a lot of infections, but very few severe cases. And that would be my expectation for Hong Kong. So certainly one of the possible strategies for Hong Kong would be from now on to start progressively relaxing the public health policies, keep an eye on severe cases in hospital and aim within three to six months to have relaxed all the public health measures. And I would say one of the first public health measures to be relaxed would be the travel restrictions because there's really no justification for those right now. And another public health measure that I would suggest to, to relax as soon as possible would also be the school closures. So schools can go back in person as, as one of the, the earliest measures to relax. And then for some of the others, maybe we keep them in place for a little bit longer, see how things are going. And then from, from week to week, decide which, which measures could be progressively relaxed. Having said all of that, I, I think the government must be thinking about an alternative strategy which would be looking at the numbers of infections. They've, they've reached their peak earlier in March. They're now coming down. Most likely they'll continue coming down, not particularly quickly, but they'll continue coming down. There's an option, I suppose, to, to try to get cases to come down faster. And maybe that would involve more stringent social distancing measures, additional public health measures. Maybe that would involve the universal testing that's been discussed. I don't know whether that will go ahead. There might be a way to get infections all the way right down to zero. I don't think it would be easy. I think it would be difficult. I think it would take a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of resources, but it's an option. It, 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 it's a possibility. And if that were the case, if infections in Hong Kong could go all the way to zero, then maybe the Hong Kong government could restart the dynamic zero plan where we have the travel restrictions, the quarantines, we keep infections out of the community, we hopefully stay at zero daily cases for a period of time. Maybe that, it, with that in place, we, we could have quarantine-free travel with the mainland, which has a lot of economic advantages and attraction, and pr protect the community from, from getting COVID. So I, I really hope that, that, that in Hong Kong, we, we'll look, look to, towards the Singaporean strategy of relaxing public health measures now, particularly that we have a high level of immunity and there's no longer really as, as much of a public health threat of, of COVID as there had been maybe two or three months ago. Now, right now is not the time to relax any measure because we still have a lot of cases in the community. The hospitals are still overloaded with severe cases. So I'm certainly not suggesting to relax anything now, but we need to plan ahead in one to two months time. I think there's certainly a case for starting to relax some of the public health measures as the case numbers get lower then uh, just just look to see which measures could be relaxed progressively so that ultimately we can get to a position where all of the measures are relaxed and we're back to normal you're a, a scientist aren't you ben and so your job is to analyze data and and give people advice about how maybe policymakers can best achieve a particular policy rather than actually advocate for a particular policy. As a family practitioner coming, looking at this from a community perspective, one of the questions I, I was asked uh, about zero COVID, is it, is it achievable? Would it be sustainable? And, and would it make sense? And my answer to that was, it, yes, it, it, it would be achievable. It would not be sustainable and it would make absolutely no sense. I, I can think of no reasons, no public health 
benefits to the population at all under any consequences or any circumstances in which going back to zero with an immune population would make sense. And I think it would actually, on the contrary, it, it would be harmful. It, it would be harmful in the short term because it would divert priorities from uh, our, 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 our resources from our priorities at the moment, which is to save lives by focusing on the hospital system. In the longer term, it could adversely impact population health by the socioeconomic impact or, or, or and increasing poverty levels, which is one of the main drivers of, of, of poor health. And um, also, it would increase the potential risk of, of a resurgence as we got waning of natural immunity. I, I can't think of any reasons under which it would make sense, Ben. Yes, I, in, in my job as a scientist, I often play devil's advocate and I think about you know, all the possibilities. And as you mentioned, I, I have to give advice, you know, if the government wants to do this, what's the best way to do it? If they want to do that, what's the best way to do it? What are the pros and cons and so on? And and for the zero COVID approach, uh, after this fifth wave, when we have a high level of immunity, um, I, I can see an advantage would be the possibility of quarantine free travel with the mainland, which would, would have economic benefits if it if it was able to, to be sustained. I, I can also imagine scenarios where maybe there's a, a new variant we haven't even imagined which is somehow more serious and escapes immunity. And, and if, if we're having zero cases, that variant doesn't get into Hong Kong for a while, uh, and that's good. But uh, I, I tend to agree with, with you that I, I don't think there's much rationale for the disruption and the expense and the knock-on consequences of, of all of these public health measures in Hong Kong given that we we have a, a highly immune population, or we will do in, in a month or two. So again, let me say, I'm, I'm not suggesting to relax measures now. I think it would be premature because we're still in the wave. There's still the, a lot of pressure on hospitals right now, but we've got a plan ahead. And in a month or two, I think there's a lot of arguments for progressively relaxing public health measures and looking to, to return to normal. And I can't see very many arguments in favor of going all the way back to zero COVID and trying to sustain zero COVID. And as you said, there's there's even a public health risk of doing that, where if we succeed and keep COVID out of the community for maybe six months, when it does come back in again, we'd actually be at risk of a larger outbreak because of that loss of, of immunity over those six months when COVID hasn't been in the community. So I, I really think that, that uh, it would make a lot of sense to relax the public health measures. But at the same time that there's still unknowns about COVID and I'm I'm sure that people have questions, for example, about long COVID, that if, if COVID circulating in the community, how can we be sure that we won't see a lot of burden in, in the coming months and years of long COVID? And, and I know people in Hong Kong now who've already got symptoms of, of long COVID, although it's, it's, it's only, I suppose it's, it's, it's not a long time since, since people would have been infected in this fifth wave, but I think we're going to see people with the long COVID symptoms that, that's been reported in other parts of the world, unfortunately. Yes, and for sure we have a, a, a long-term public health burden as a result of this disease, don't we? And, of course, one of the things that we have got reasonably good evidence is reducing the incidence of long COVID is vaccination. And one of our problems at the moment is, is the vaccination of the, we could almost say, the wrong fragment of our population or at least not high levels of vaccination in the right fragments of our population. So one of the questions we were also asked this week is... There are lots of news reports of Hong Kong having the highest rate in the world. Why is this? And is the Hong Kong variant more deadly? Well, it, 
I think we have to distinguish the peak in mortality, which has been a very sharp peak. We've had a, a very sharp rise in infections and consequently a very sharp rise in mortality. So the, the daily number of deaths is pretty high at the minute. But if you look at the cumulative numbers, we're not doing too badly so far. For example, you look, look at some countries in Europe and the United States per capita, they've had a lot more deaths cumulatively over the past two years than we've had so far in, in Hong Kong. But, uh, it's really not ideal because we've had vaccines available for a year. And when we look at the data that the CHP report every day, almost all of the deaths are occurring in unvaccinated older adults. And we always knew that older adults are at the, the highest risk of severe disease, particularly if they're unvaccinated. Um, in Hong Kong, there's been a lot of effort in promoting vaccination in, in the past year. Um, most recently, we, we've even got the, this uh, vaccine pass system, but that doesn't necessarily work on, on older people, particularly if they're in residential care homes. And uh, th there's been a lot of different reasons why older people have, have chosen not to get vaccinated or haven't been vaccinated if they're not the, the person who makes the decisions about themselves. Uh, some people in, old, uh, in elderly homes cannot make the decisions themselves. They, they have to rely on family members to make decisions for them or, or the, uh, the directors of the care homes. It, it's, it's very sad to see that the vaccine uptake in over 80s has been so low. I think at the start of this wave, it was below 30%. Now it's, it's rising quite quickly. But uh, it, if we'd had vaccine coverage in, in older adults of, of uh, maybe 80%, 90%, like in Singapore and New Zealand and other places, I think we'd have had much less severe disease, much less mortality. That's very clear from, from the statistics. My colleagues and I are working on the, the estimates of vaccine effectiveness. We, we don't have a number yet, but we're sure that it's, it's in the range 90% for, for both vaccines, for Sinovac and for BioNTech in terms of protecting against severe disease. And, and you can see that just from looking at the, the data reported by the CHP every day. Almost all of the severe disease Almost all of the deaths are in unvaccinated people, whichever age group they're in, and almost all of the severe diseases in older adults. Yes, I think that's, as you say, that's that's clear, isn't it, that the these vaccines do work. And, and I think, unfortunately, sometimes, maybe because of a little bit of the politicisation of the process, but there's criticism of, of Sinovac. We've, we've, you know, I've talked about this before, Ben. It's, 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 it looks like it is going to turn out to be a good vaccine against death and severe disease. And despite the news reports and the questions about all the different reasons, it looks like this is a pretty standard BA2 Omicron epidemic. There's nothing particularly deadly about the virus. It really comes down to, to three factors in, that, that have come together almost as a perfect storm, isn't it? There's the, the lack of natural immunity in the population. We have almost no natural immunity. There's very low vaccination rates in the most vulnerable fragments of the population, which is something you and I have been campaigning about and banging that drum for many, many months. And then, unfortunately, we ended up with this overloading of the hospital system. And those three factors created this, this surge in, in mortality. But I think it is important, as, as you rightfully say, that it's the mortality rate is very high at the moment. But whatever happens over the next couple of months, I mean, my you know, back of the envelope data, it suggests that we're going to end up somewhere between Denmark and Sweden, you know, somewhere along the best performing European countries. So we're not going to be, 
you know, winning the gold medal along with New Zealand and Singapore and maybe China, but, you know, we're not going to do as well as we could have done if we'd have a different strategy, but we aren't going to be as bad as some of the countries that let these things burn through very early. Um, we had a question from, from a, a youngster who was asking about going back to school, and I guess maybe that helps to frame the difficulty in public health decisions, doesn't it? On the one hand, we're worried about the elderly and the vulnerable, and on the other hand, we have to balance that with the needs of the young and, and, and their development. Um, let's ask her question and see what you think. Hi, I'm 12 years old and I live in Clearwater Bay. My question for the doctors is this. Right now, we are stuck in online school and there's a bit of worry about our social development being impacted. Please, can you give us your thoughts on this and any advice you may have? Thank you. Do you think the schools could be going back? When do you think the schools will be going back? I think in the past two and a bit years with, with COVID, we've seen the importance of public health measures in limiting transmission uh, a number of times, particularly in 2020. Infections were increasing in the community and we had to find ways to stop those outbreaks, the second wave, the third wave, the fourth wave, because we, we, we knew there'd be serious consequences if those outbreaks were not stopped. Now we find ourselves hopefully past the peak of the fifth wave and hopefully we're going to see numbers coming down from week to week now case numbers coming down and also severe cases coming down and my colleagues at the university of hong kong have estimated that now a, a large number of people have been infected in this fifth wave by the end of the fifth wave millions of people i, I think they said three maybe even four million people could have been infected in this fifth wave that means we'll have a high level of immunity against infection and also a high level of protection in the community against severe disease and in my mind, that means there's relatively less justification going forwards for many of the public health measures that we've had in place to slow down transmission. Now, during the fifth wave, it's been important to slow down transmission. If we didn't have the public health measures in place in January and February, we would have seen an even more explosive outbreak of Omicron than we've seen. We know that the basic reproductive number for the BA2 variant of Omicron is probably in the range of 10 even 12 that's potentially as high as measles so if there's no public health measures in place that's a very 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 rapid spread of infections and a very large number of infections and, and severe cases in a very short space of time with the public health measures in place in hong kong that reproductive number was brought down to a level maybe more like two or three so it's, it's not below one there's still transmission but it's slower than it would have been and so the school closure certainly made a difference certainly saved lives other public health measures made a difference and saved lives. But now and looking to the future, there's maybe less of a reason to keep them in place because they've done, done the job that they were needed for. They've slowed down transmission. They flattened the curve to some degree. There was still a curve, but they, they slowed down transmission compared to if they hadn't been used. And I, I really hope that we'll see schools go back in person. And I hope that we won't see the need to close schools anymore. One of the specific recommendations I could give is to use rapid tests in children to make sure that schools can stay open as long as possible, as often as possible. That's been done in other parts of the world. So in other words, provide rapid tests to, to all the children in Hong Kong and ask them to use them regularly, maybe two or three times a week before they go to school, perhaps even every day before they go to school. And as long as they're negative, they go to school. And doing that would help to protect the classrooms, protect the teachers as well. and and the people that work in schools and allow schools to stay 
in person and not need to be closed. Yes, I think this is incredibly important that the schools are open so that children can get back to living lives that children should leave. We, we, we know that social interaction is incredibly, incredibly important for the development of a child. Education is, is more than sitting in front of a computer. You know, one of my other side interests actually is, is, is sport. I, I'm a medical officer of one of the, well, the rugby union, one of the sporting organizations. We've had no sport. The children haven't been physically active as the adults haven't. And we know as a family doctor, we describe health as a state of physical, psychological and social well-being, not the absence of disease. And, and, and I, I think that's a fantastic definition. And sometimes, in the pandemic, I think there's a tendency to get so focused on this disease and this and this bad thing that it maybe misses the fact that there's so much positive things that we can do. Health is not about, you know, health is not the opposite of disease. Health is a positive construct. We can be healthier. We can, we can run, we can jump, we can play, we can interact socially, we can smile at each other. So it's very important that children get back to school and that they can you know, begin to be children again. We had um, a, a couple of questions around about rapid testing. Uh, one of the questions is, my husband and the kids are all negative. Uh, I've got zero symptoms, but continue to test positive after 12 days and the rapid test line is faint. What does this mean and how long will it be Do you think I'm negative? Am I I'm a risk of infecting others? Any thoughts on that? So we know from studies elsewhere that rapid test positivity is reasonably well correlated with contagiousness. And that's different to PCR, where, where if you were doing a PCR test, you could continue to test positive by PCR for some time after you've stopped being contagious. But the rapid test is reasonably well correlated with contagiousness. So I would be careful if you're still testing positive on the rapid test, even if it's a weak positive. And I, I, I think... The shortest that the people tend to be positive on rapid tests is maybe five or six days. It's unusual to be to be negative more quickly than that. And it's, it's not that unusual to go 10, 12 days testing positive on a rapid test. It varies from person to person, but a lot longer than two weeks would, would be surprising. And it, it's good news that, that your, your family members have not been infected. But I, th I think you, you would need to be aware that if you tested by PCR, even in a week or two's time, you, you may well come back as PCR positive after the rapid test has gone negative. But with a weak positive rapid test, I would still be concerned about being somewhat contagious. I agree completely. We've been advising patients of ours to stay isolated until either day seven or a negative rapid test, whichever is the latter. And that's what we're using in health systems. So as you say, you, you, even that faint line indicates that you can be infectious and, and providing people isolate that, that can help in breaking transmission chains. And it's one of the things I've never really understood why we haven't moved more to more wide use of, of rapid tests rather than PCR testing. I think there are advantages and disadvantages of each test, but my simple way of thinking about this is that a, a PCR test may be a better diagnostic tool, but a, but a a rapid test can be a better public health tool in the sense that it gives you a result relatively quickly and allows individuals to make their own decisions. Have you got any thoughts about that, Ben? Rapid test versus PCR testing? David, that, that's right. I, I think rapid tests can do an enormous amount of good in a situation where we're aiming to mitigate and ultimately relax all the public health measures. 
because it's something that can be done at scale. It doesn't require the centralized public health resources and, and the CHP to, to, to collect information on the cases and to tell them what to do and to isolate them and so on. And rapid tests, we know, pick up the most contagious individuals. We know that not everybody may follow the, the recommendations and the guidelines and, and not everybody may, may do the tests as frequently as we'd like. But in terms of mitigation, they can do a lot of good. They can reduce transmission, not necessarily stop it, but reduce it in a very cost-effective way. On the other hand, though, if the concept is to aim for containment, to try to stop transmission, perhaps to get back to zero cases, then PCR makes sense because then it's a very sensitive technology. It can find every possible case. Even if it finds a case who's already recovered, that may be useful if then contact tracing can go and find the subsequent chains of transmission and, and other cases and hopefully would, wouldn't miss any cases. So I, I suppose I, I would say that for, for zero COVID, PCR makes a lot of sense and, and rapid tests might not be as useful. But in a, a strategy where we're aiming to return to normal and slow down transmission and mitigate the epidemic, then I think rapid tests are a fantastic technology. And I, I would like to see them being used more in Hong Kong. Yeah, it's very interesting, isn't it? I mean, this is one of the challenges isn't it, of, of not really defining a specific strategy. Exactly as you say, if, you, if your strategy is to go to zero COVID, you're going to do one thing. But if your strategy is to mitigate, it makes sense to do something else. And I sometimes wonder whether, well, I can see that we've for sure been caught between those two ideals. And in some ways, one of the things that's necessary to transition to mitigation is, is to actually start to educate and trust your population to make the decisions independently and, and and maybe that's something that we haven't been quite ready to do yet but it looks like it's beginning to happen and like you going back to our earlier point i i'm a little bit more optimistic than you ben i think everything could be completely normal in three months we've just got to make the right decision but as you know i'm an optimist we had a few questions about vaccinations around children and um, let's hear the question should I give my three-year-old Sinovac now or wait for Pfizer to clear testing in May? Do you think vaccine mixing will be allowed in future? I'm worried about him growing older on Sinovac when other vaccines offer better immunity. What do you think about that one? Well, right now with the Pfizer vaccine, that they did a two-dose study, I think, in that age group in, in children, maybe three and four. And uh, I think the results were not strong enough. So they've gone back to do a third dose to see if, if that's going to to work and supposedly in in may we might hear the results and perhaps by that point maybe by june then we'd see a situation where where younger children in hong kong could get the biotech vaccine as well and that would be children maybe three to four but uh, right now we have a lot of covid in the community and i'm not sure it's a good idea to wait that may not materialize and we know that vaccines can benefit people going all the way down to age three the sign of a vaccine is is not as good as the, the BioNTech vaccine, but it's certainly a lot better than not getting vaccinated. And when I'm asked that question, I, I would advise people to get the vaccine that's available. Don't wait for a number of months in, in the off chance that, that another vaccine might be available. In terms of the specific issue on vaccine mixing, I wouldn't worry too much. For someone who has two doses of Sinovac first up, 
they can certainly get their third dose would, would be a BioNTech vaccine at, at some point in the future, rather than three doses of Sinovac. And I, I hope that we'll see more flexibility in this in the coming months in Hong Kong. And in the longer term, I hope that we'll see a lot of flexibility in terms of vaccination choices. We, we won't see the requirement for, for people to get continually get vaccinated. At the moment, we, we know there's a vaccine pass system and fairly soon, it seems like people might be required to get three doses. But actually, in my opinion, given the high level of immunity in Hong Kong that we've now surpassed, I, I, I don't see such a rationale anymore for vaccine passes, perhaps in older people where we really want to protect people in, in, in elderly homes. Maybe that there's still a, a place for it there. But in the general community, we have such a high level of vaccine coverage already. Uh, we now have a lot of immunity from the infections that have been occurring in the fifth wave. I don't think there's a good enough reason to, to effectively force people to get vaccinated. And I, I think we'll start to see pushback on the vaccine pass system fairly soon. Yes, I tend to agree with that. And I've been giving my patients exactly that same advice. I think probability of infection is by far greater in Hong Kong at the moment than it's going to be anywhere else in two, three months. So, you know, going back to the thing that we talked about really get right at the very, very beginning, the best, the best vaccine is the one that you can get in your arm. And, and if we've, we've got an epidemic at the moment. So somebody who's made a decision to get vaccinated, they should get vaccinated now and not wait for something that might be a little bit better. Because, you know, as, as you've said, which is, which is great news that it looks like. Sinovac is, is very effective in, in protecting against significant disease and severe illness. And the other thing that has changed recently, and we did have a number of questions around the, the availability of, of the drugs and the potential impact that, that they can have on um, the, the epidemic. And this is something I, I know this week in Hong Kong, we've got uh, Paxlovid, the, the, the new antiviral that really gives us now a a series of drugs we we can use, and, and remdesivir is, is is possibly a little bit better than the other oral uh, molnupiravir. Um, but effectively, we have we have drug treatment which could be making a difference. Have you got thoughts on those? Ben? Well, I think there's been very positive results from the clinical trials of the two antivirals, the Paxlovid and the molnupiravir. Um, how that materializes into effectiveness in practice we'll have to see but i'm sure it, it will do some good I, I think the estimates from the clinical trials were 90 percent effective in reducing hospitalizations in real life maybe wouldn't be quite that good but should still be able to help a lot of people but we know with antiviral drugs it's essential to give them as soon as possible after infection in elderly homes in hong kong i know there's a lot of testing and if they can pick up infections early and treat quickly, I think we could see substantial reductions in mortality. But there's a lot of ifs in there. They, they have to be diagnosed early and they have to be treated early. And of course, not only in elderly homes, but, but in the community as, as well and, and in people at risk of, of getting severe disease. So let, let's see. But I, I see a lot of potential for antivirals to really reduce the, the incidence of severe disease going forwards from here and in the longer term with vaccines available with antivirals available as well that that's an even stronger case 
to to go for the approach of relaxing public health measures and relying on the protection from vaccines and also having antivirals there to to reduce severe disease. COVID poses much less of a threat than it has done in the past. And on that note, I think we look back, we always like to try and finish on an optimistic note. You feel that three to six months, we could be getting back to normal. I'll, I'll, I'll up that to three months, Ben, I think. I think we could be back to normal or near normal within three months. The borders could be open immediately. And things are looking very, very different to the way they have been over many of the last few months, although we are going through a difficult time at the moment. I think it's not going to be too long and we'll be able to maybe not take our masks off immediately, but it won't be long before we'll be able to start smiling at each other. So thanks very much yet again and looking forward to uh, catching up with you when you get back, when those borders do open. All the best. Thank you. If you have a question you'd like to put to Professor Cowling and Dr Owens, you can leave it in the comments section of our website at www.otnp.com, where you will find further information on all the topics discussed in this episode. We would also like to take this opportunity to tell you about a new podcast series from the OTMP Mindworks team called Peace of Mind, where our mental health practitioners sit down to discuss all aspects of your mental well-being. You can find the first two episodes on our website, on Spotify and iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to hear future episodes of this series, hit the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.